Now, I realize that there are some portions of Scripture that seem much more applicable than others and seemingly more relevant to everyday life than other passages of Scripture. As Mike just read that passage, you might be thinking, well, what in the world does this, ha- this passage have to do with anything that I'm going to face this week? I mean, there's language like covenant, annulment, ratified, law, offspring, 430 years, inheritance, intermediary, and so on. It doesn't seem highly practical, like, just do this. I was talking with a pastor friend of mine a few months ago, and I said, I'm going to be jumping into the book of Galatians. And he goes, oh, I really don't like Galatians until you get to chapter 5. So here we are in chapter 3, going through the stuff that we need to go through that some just don't care for. But this is rich. Let me whet your appetite on the front end to give you three relevant, everyday kind of situations that should affect the way we think, at least. The first reason why this passage is relevant is because we are people of the word, And as we see the word this morning, we're seeing that scripture, the word, is always pointing us to Jesus Christ. Always pointing us to Christ. And we'll talk about that and see that in a moment. This passage is also very relevant for us because it continually forces us to be accurate in our understanding of the gospel. This is what Galatians has been about. And as Paul gets to each paragraph, it's as though he turns the argument a few degrees and approaches it just slightly differently so that we are just emphatic about our understanding of the gospel that it comes to us by faith not by law so we want to understand the gospel clearly and and then the third reason which I just mentioned is that this is relevant because it does show us the difference between how God views works And how God views grace. How works have been part of God's plan. The law has been part of God's plan. And how grace is part of God's plan. Now, you lean into one of those two categories naturally as a person. Naturally, we measure ourselves and our worth by our own work and accomplishments. We have that bent inside of us that we want to measure up according to a standard to basically gain our identity or our worth. Here's an example of that. If you're here this morning and you're internally wrecked because you feel defeated by what you did in your past, you probably live with a law mindset because you base yourself according to what you've done. We all have been there, right? We've all had those days where we look back and say, man, I really feel worthless because of that Or if you're feeling pretty good about yourself because of your accomplishments or what you've done or been able to attain, you probably have a law mindset because you look at the measurement and you say, look what I was able to do. A grace mindset functions very differently. It realizes that we have been saved from our pride, from our shame, which some of the songs we're talking about this morning, by God's kindness. And even when we do something that is good, which God does require good things from us, he requires morality from us, as we'll see later on in the book of Galatians. And even when we do those things, the Christian can step back and the Christian knows the difference between law and grace. 
If you look at obedience and you don't know the difference between law and grace, you need help. If you see obedience in your life as, I just obeyed the law, period, you need help. You need, and I say that humbly, you need a better, deeper understanding of the gospel or you need to be saved. Because our obedience, when we obey as Christians, we look at our obedience and we say, wow, God was the one who was at work in me. God was the one that motivated me to do that. God was the one who supplied his spirit in me to do that. And so there, there is this huge mindset and difference that comes to us in the book of Galatians that God gives us grace. He gives us the ability to do these things. He gives us the desire to do these things. It's all from him. All right, so let's move into our passage this morning. I think those relevant themes will be weaving between the different points and in these verses this morning. Let me just say there are two points. I'm going to give you the two points as we go through the sermon. So point number one, Verses 15 through 18 are simply this, is simply this. Salvation comes by God's promise, not by law. Salvation comes by God's promise, not by law. That's point number one to the sermon. So in verse 15, Paul is unpacking his argument. And it seems kind of abrupt when he jumps in. But let's keep in mind that he has a flow of argument. He says, to give a human example, brothers... Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. All right, so I know we're just kind of jumping in. Where has Paul been? He's been talking about us being sons of Abraham. And that really came in in verses 6 through 9 of last week's sermon. God had made a covenant with Abraham, a, a promise with Abraham. And in this promise with Abraham, one of the things that you need to know about this promise with Abraham is that when it happened, God cut these animals apart, right? A, a covenant begins um, by these animals being cut or sacrificed. In fact, the term covenant means to cut. We are cutting an agreement. We are going forward with this. And when God came to Abraham and made this covenant with him, he had three components that he was giving to Abraham in this covenant. One was land. I'm going to lead you to a land. And number two is I'm going to make of you a nation, so offspring. And then the third part of this covenant was I'm going to make you a blessing. Through you, a blessing will come to the nations of the world. So those three things, land, offspring, and blessing are part of what God promised Abraham back in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. Now, covenant. When God made this covenant with Abraham, he came to him, and this was a one-way covenant. This was not a two-way covenant. Covenants can be one-way or two-way. So, for example, if my dad comes to my kids, so grandpa comes to grandchildren, and says, hey, there's uh, 50 bucks in an envelope for you under the Christmas tree this year. They hear that covenant, they hear that promise that grandpa has made to them, and all they have to do is receive that, 50 bucks. 
if grandpa comes to them and says, I've got 50 bucks for you, but in order to earn this 50 bucks, you have to shovel the driveway. They can enter into a covenant there. They can say, okay, I'm agreeing to shovel the driveway and you're agreeing to give me 50 bucks. Let's go forward. That's a two-way covenant. The one-way covenant is where grandpa comes to him and says, hey, I promise you 50 bucks. It's under the tree. All you have to do is just receive it. It's all yours. When God comes to Abraham in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, 17, those chapters of Genesis, God is coming to Abraham with a one-way covenant saying, this is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to give you those three components. And to show that it was a one-way covenant, you remember in Genesis 15, where God takes the animals and cuts them apart, splits like four animals, has them on either side, and in Genesis 15, it's not Abraham who walks through the middle of those to say, I am now going to act in this covenant. It's only God who moves through those animals to say, I'm the one who's obligating myself to give to you. And the purpose of these cut animals is to show the people involved that if I don't keep the terms of the covenant, it's better for me to be that dead animal. So Abraham has this promise that's given to him. Now, as you see here in the passage, 430 years later, another covenant comes. And this is the covenant that God makes with Israel at Sinai. It's a covenant of works. And you remember the people are at the base of Sinai. Sinai and that covenant is a two-way covenant. God is coming to the people there and saying, if you enter into a covenant of works with me and, and obedience to me of law here, obeying the law, if you do this, then I will bless you and provide for you. So you read this in Deuteronomy 27 to the end of the chapter where they talk about the blessings and the cursings. Now, to show that this was a two-way covenant, Israel is at the base of Sinai. And do you remember when Moses took the blood? Whom did the blood land on? Landed on the people. You're part of this covenant. That was a two-party covenant. That's important to remember in this passage here. Israel had said, we will do this. They, they failed in it. All right, so in verse 15... What Paul is saying here is, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. As you look at this, um, Paul is doing something that makes us all kind of go, well, give us clarity. He's saying that this Abrahamic covenant that God gave, that God stepped into, you're not going to change it. He's going to be faithful in coming through with the terms of the covenant. He is going to provide that blessing, especially that he talks about, where all people of the earth will be blessed. And so you saw this up earlier in verses 8 and 9. Just go up to verses 8 and 9. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, this was part of the covenant, and you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And what Paul is saying is, hey, a covenant's been put in place. We're not going to like tweak the terms of this covenant. They're set. But what Paul does next 
is where we can understand verse 15. We can understand that commitments are made and you don't tweak those commitments. But what Paul does next in verse 16 is what makes us want to pull the fire alarm this morning. It makes us go, what, is, what are you talking about? No, look at verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. So what is Paul doing here? Paul realizes that the blessing is going to come through Abraham's line, but he is very theologically pulling a trunk line of the family tree of Abraham all the way down to Jesus and saying that the promise God made to Abraham is actually made to Christ. Now, this might sound foreign to us because we think, well, how does this work? It might sound foreign to read the promises of Abraham as ultimately belonging to Jesus, but as we study the storyline of Scripture and see God making promises throughout Scripture, we see that this is his pattern, where the promises that God makes are ultimately promises that, that find their landing spot, they find their fulfillment in Christ. Let me give you three of them. And you are familiar with at least two, maybe all three of these. Here's one, Genesis 3.15. After Adam and Eve had sinned, God approaches Satan and he gives him this promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. The offspring of Eve shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Whom was God speaking of in Genesis 3.15? The offspring there. Was he speaking of Eve's son, Cain and Abel? No. Was he speaking of Eve's son, Seth? We know that when we read Genesis 3.15, the offspring whom he is speaking of is Jesus. Boom! Christ is the serpent crusher. That's the promise going to Christ. Here's another example of seeing Christ be the fulfillment of God's promises, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses is speaking to the people, and he says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among you from your brothers. It is to him whom you shall listen. So here's a promise. God is going to raise up this mighty prophet that they're going to listen to from his brothers. So who is this prophet who is coming? Well, here's what scripture says. Move to Acts 3, verses 19 to 22. Here's Peter preaching a sermon here. He says, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And here it is. Moses said, the Lord shall raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. So God is going to raise up a prophet among your brothers. You're looking for it generation, 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 generation. Whom was that promise pointing to? Ultimately, it was pointing to Jesus. Here's a third one. 
2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 13. Speaking of David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, David, I will raise up your offspring, there's that word again, after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So here's a promise made to David using that term offspring again. We're looking for somebody coming. Is it Solomon? Nope, it wasn't Solomon. Is it Solomon's kids? Nope, they were a mess. Not, nobody in that line. So whom is the Davidic covenant ultimately pointing to? Whom was God making that promise about? Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. He will be great and he will be called Son of the Most High. This is the angel speaking to Mary. And the Lord God will give to him, that is your son, the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Okay, so as you step back and look at the covenants and the promises that God has made, you see this pattern throughout Scripture. The promises that God makes are meant to make a zip line to Christ. So 2 Corinthians 1.20 says this, For all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Christ. That is why it is through him, that is Christ, that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So God makes these promises. What about the Mosaic Covenant? How does that find its fulfillment? All the law, all the works that the people were supposed to do, they failed absolutely miserably. And it's one who comes along, Christ, who keeps the law perfectly. And then Christ gives the blessing to his people and takes the curse upon himself, as we saw last week. If you're reading scripture and you're seeing these promises, you're seeing how the New Testament authors are saying, wait a second, God made a promise back here, and we have to see that the only hope for that promise to come true, let's make a zip line all the way to Christ right here, all the way to Christ, all the way to Christ. And it's the same with the Abrahamic covenant. When God says, hey, I'm going to give you land, I'm going to give you offspring, and I'm going to give you blessing, Make the beeline, make the zip line down Abraham's family tree all the way to Christ. You say, wait a second, though. There seems to be something contradictory here. Paul says that Abraham's offspring is singular, Christ, not offsprings, plural. Yet, I scratch my head and I think, didn't you just say last week that God took Abraham outside of his tent one starry night, had him look up at the stars and say, your offspring will be plural like the stars of heaven? Isn't that the case? I mean, so how do we get from plural to single? How do we solve this seeming contradiction? Well, look back at verse 7 of this chapter. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Look at verse 9. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. 
then in my Bible, I have to turn the page, look down at verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's singular offspring, heirs according to promise. So Christ becomes the gateway, if you will, to the fulfillment of these promises. If you think of Abraham up here at the top where the promise is made, Paul is saying, hey, if you want to be included in the Abrahamic promise, look at this as an hourglass where it comes down to the singular offspring, Christ. And those who place their faith in Christ are welcomed into this, and those who are Christ now are the heirs of this covenant that God has made with Abraham. So, Paul is teaching us that God's word, Paul is showing us how God's word is meant to be understood with these zip lines and these beelines that go all the way to Christ where he is the fulfillment and where we, we're united to Christ, enjoy the benefits through Christ. We also know that when Abraham received this covenant from God, he received it on the basis of faith. He simply took God at his word. And God rewarded him with righteousness. Now, this has been Paul's point through this. The promise that God made to Abraham, it was received not by works, but by faith. So back in verse 6, it says, When God came to him and gave him this promise, Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's a blessing for us. Through Abraham, Christ came, and his righteousness is a gift to the nation so that we saw Ryan Scheel last week going to Somalia, trying to reach the Somalis. We prayed for Phil this morning, who's in Zambia, preaching the gospel there. We we know that the gospel is going to be a blessing to all of the nations. And I'm part of that. I've received that blessing. In Christ, that promise has come to me, and it's come to you as well. And so I stand back and I'm like, okay, God, thank you that you are giving this on the basis of faith. All right, all of this to say, verses 15 and 16 Help us understand that we are part of Abraham's family because faith in Jesus brings us into Abraham's family. Did law bring us into the family? That's where he goes in the next verse, verse 17. He says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul, does not cancel out, make it, you know, worthless, a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So the opponents of Paul recognized Abraham's family as the family that had received God's blessing. How did one come into this family and receive salvation? We know it's by faith. However, Paul's opponents were saying that to come into this family, you have to do works of the law. Does the law change the Abrahamic covenant? It was a one-way covenant. Does the law change that? No. The law of Moses came. It came 430 years later. It was a separate 
covenant. It was a separate relationship. So maybe you can think of it this way. I marry my wife in 2003, right? 2003. <laughs> we get married and we have this covenant or commitment to one another. Along comes children three years into marriage, and there is certainly a new dynamic that's taking place now for the season of time where children are in our home. My covenant to my wife still remains the same. All along the way, I'm still committed to her, committed to her, committed to her. My children are here, my children are here, and eventually, Lord willing, my children are going to leave the house. So they come to an end, and it's me and my wife again. I love my children, we're having a great time, don't get me wrong. But just the point of it, there is a season of time here where our family changes, the dynamics change, because something has been added. All right, in God's plan, here's the covenant that he made with Abraham. A blessing is going to come, and, and Abraham, I'm the one that's stepping into this. I'm the one that's going to fulfill this. Here comes the covenant that he gives to Israel at Sinai here. It's going to be in place for like 1,400 years, and then it comes to an end in Christ. Law never brought somebody into a relationship with God. The relationship with God, as you see with Abraham, was always on the basis of faith. Law for that season of time was a means of, how are you going to relate to me? How am I going to relate to you? How are we going to walk in obedience and fellowship with one another? That's what the law was. Jesus fulfilled the law and brought that to an end. And the same promise with Abraham, the promise of salvation that comes through faith in God, it, it's continuing. So law did not change it. And that's where, that's where so many people have gotten it wrong. That's where these opponents to Paul have gotten it wrong. I was telling the music group just before we started um, the service here that I read this last week, and I read it this last week in a, a paragraph that a study was done with Protestants asking this question, is faith and works part of your salvation? Is faith and works part of your salvation? I didn't throw it in my notes. And the paragraph said that it was either 52 or 48, and you, can, you understand why I have those two numbers in my mind. One of those responded out of Protestants saying, yes, faith and works. Which means that there are a number of people claiming to be Christ followers and saved that are wrong. Because Paul is saying, it's only by faith that one comes into salvation. Is works part of our lives? Is morality part of our lives? Absolutely. But if, like the opponents of Paul, people are saying, in order to have a relationship with God, I've got to cozy up to him with my works, which the world believes. And we've talked about this over and over again. You talk to the average Joe out on the street who believes in the existence of God, believes that Jesus came. He'll believe in Christmas. He'll say, well, I sure hope I'm getting to heaven. I believe that Jesus came. Now I have to be pretty good, right? That's the same thing that's going on here. It's wrong. That's deception. 
And so what Paul is showing us here is that, man, even though morality is part of life here, it does not nullify the entrance that we have into this blessing. That entrance, that on-ramp, is only by faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, so here's the question that Paul anticipates. Verse 19, why then the law? Why did the law come around? All right, so point number two, the law shows us our need for God's promise. The law shows us our need for God's promise. He says in verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Okay, several things that I want to just say about the law quickly. Number one is this. The law gives us knowledge of sin. The law gives us knowledge of sin. Romans 3 verse 20 says this. For by works of the law, no human will be justified in his sight. There it is. Can't happen. Why is that? Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You see, the world needs objectivity to know that it, we, are sinful. Paul talks about this in 1 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 10. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Well, how are you supposed to use the law lawfully? Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just. So you are not, as I see it, you are not under the law, folks. The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. What the law does is the law says, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, over and over again. We talked about the teacher last week, the very strict teacher, no encouragement, just always pointing out, You did it wrong. You failed. You failed. You failed. That's what the law does. The law also increases sin. It gives us a knowledge of sin, but it also increases sin. Romans 5 verse 20 says this. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin or the trespass increased, grace abounded all the more. How does the law increase the trespass. If you've read Augustine's Confessions, he uses this story in his life that I think just explains this super well, how the law increases the sin, increases the trespass. He talks about his life as a young man, and I believe he was growing up in North Africa, somewhere around in that area. And he had, there were pear trees all over the place. Pears were abounding at this time of the year. However, there was one pear tree that was out in the field, and it was not his pear tree. It was a neighbor's pear tree, and they were supposed to leave that pear tree alone. Here are nine other pear trees, so to say, that you could have and you could go mess with if you want to. But that one pear tree in that field, don't touch it. Why? Because here's the rule. Don't touch it. And Augustine and his friends, late one night are looking at that one pear tree like, I got to have that one because they were supposed to leave it alone. Leave that one alone. That's what the law does. The law says, hmm, you want to do that. You remember the little kiddo? Maybe it's your grandchild. You've told them, 
do not touch that. Do not touch that. Do not touch that. You turn the back, but somebody's got their phone on with the little video that's going, and it's like the kid just keeps going over and looking at you and just saying, I got to touch that because you just told me not to touch it. That's what the law does. It increases the trespass. Number three, the law is not an authority for the people of God. The law is not an authority for the people of God, right? So the law shows you sin as a sinner. Once you come under Christ, the law is not your authority anymore, right? So where do I get this? Just again, um, verse 19, it gives us our first hint here. The law was added. It says it was added. Why the law? It was added because of transgressions. And here's a time frame until the offspring should come. That's Christ to whom the promise had been made. So we know that there's a time for this law in God's people. Go over to verse 24. Verse 24. So then the law was our guardian or was our authority until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Okay, so there you see it again. The law is not our authority. Not our authority. It's not our guardian. Um, Christ came. And so you might ask, well, what, help me understand this because sometimes I see like there's law that's presented in the New Testament. And you're like, yeah, what happens in, as I see it is the law of Christ, now that we're under has morality that comes from the Old Covenant law, the Old Testament law, things like don't steal, don't lie, don't commit adultery, don't murder, love God, love your neighbor. You're like, that sounds very familiar with everything that was happening back under the Old Covenant. The answer is yes, you can't deny that. But now I'm under Christ, and so what Christ tells me and how Christ measures me for my righteousness, it's all about him. It's not me measuring up and failing against the law now. It's all about Christ. So the law is not an authority for God's people. Number four, the law is inferior to God's promise. The law is inferior to God's promise. And Back in chapter 3, again, picking up in verse 19. The law was added because of transgression until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. All right, so what is going on with this? Let me just say this briefly. Moses' law started with God. Paul is saying it came through angels then it was passed to an intermediary, that is Moses, and then it went to God's people. Boom, boom, boom. It's four steps for that to come. God came to Abraham, directly to Abraham, with the promise, and just came right there and said, hey, here's what I'm giving. And the way that Paul is arranging that is saying, that even points to the superiority of God just skipping all these intermediate steps and coming right to Abraham. There's the last one here that I have for you about the law. Number five, uh, the law cannot give righteousness to us. The law cannot give righteousness to us. Verses 21 and 22. Is the law then contrary 
to the promises of God? Certainly, it's not. All right, so here's the promise that salvation comes through faith. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The law cannot give us righteousness. The law cannot give us anything that we need. That's not its purpose. It was never designed to be a giver. And that's what the people in Galatia needed to hear. And that's what deceived Protestants or people today need to hear. Folks, if you're depending on the law and your measurement against the law to get you salvation, if you're dependent on being a good person in God's eyes, you're wrong. We are sinners. God's word says that we are imprisoned under sin. And it's Christ, it's God who comes to us. Just as God came to Abraham split the animals, and walked through them. It's God who comes to us in Christ. He meets us where we are, and we see the blood of the cross on Christ. He's saying, this is my covenant. It's the new covenant in my blood, and I'm going to do this for my people. I'm going to save them. So when you step back and look at the gift of salvation, Paul is saying it's all dependent on the promise of God, not dependent upon yourself. And that promise, like the envelope under the tree, is only to be received by faith, not by going out and shoveling the driveway. That's a completely different relationship that has nothing to do with it, not by going out and doing all kinds of good things. Which tells me, if salvation is going to come to its fulfillment in my life, eternal life and the forgiveness of my sins, here is like the the place that I can rest. It is all dependent on the character of God bringing it to fullness. Not myself. I don't have to worry about this. The one who began a good work in me, He's promising to bring it to fullness. He's going to bring it to completion. Sometimes we have this, just this jaded perspective, and sometimes Satan loves to use doubt. Um, I heard a great illustration this last week that helps me think about God is the one who does this for us. He's the one who is giving this to us. We just reach out and believe. And and the illustration went something like this. So many times we feel like we don't have enough belief. We don't have enough. So I have to get more belief so that I know that that promise is mine. How do I know if I have enough belief? And the illustration went like this. Pretend you're falling off a cliff and you're on your way down, and you see that branch that's sticking out. What does belief do? Belief just throws the hand out. 
and says, that's what I'm holding to. I'm going to cling to that. I, I'm, I'm throwing it out there and I'm just trusting that branch now. Your amount of belief could be like paper thin to throw that hand out and say, I'm trusting that. Paper thin. You don't need like heavy lead weight belief to throw that hand out there to trust the branch. You do it because you're just putting your faith in that branch. It's all about the branch now. And what God is coming along is saying, I want my people to know that they can trust my promises to them. They can trust the promise. The promise will not be weak. I am the one behind the promise. You trust me for eternal life. And so what you're trusting in is God all the way to the end to give you salvation. And so this morning, what we do is we walk away from a passage like this and we say, okay, God, I can see how much more now I am grateful to you for being a promise keeper. You're the one who makes the promise. You're the one who keeps the promise. I receive it by faith. Not only that, we are people now who say, I want to have a grace mindset. I want to have a faith-driven mindset, not a law-driven mindset. So when I go through my, my week and life coming up, I want my mind to be able to say, God, I am not measured by these works of the law that you're doing. You have given me something. I receive it. You give me Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sin, the blessing through Abraham's line. He is mine to receive. And if I receive him, this changes my attitude about how I view myself. I am accepted. I am part of the family. When we think about, I was talking with some friends this week, when we think about even parenting, there is this tendency that we have to put our kids under the law, cage them in with the law. And what the law does is the law puts bars up in front of them. It's like a cage. You can put the lion in the cage, as one author was writing this week, you can put the lion in the cage to keep them from eating the lamb. But you can't change the desire of the lion by putting him in the cage. He still wants to eat the lamb. That's law. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't talk like that. What we need to do is bring people to the promise. Here's what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. He loves you. Let your affections, let your desires be about pleasing him, not what I want. And so I just step back and there's so many strings that just start getting connected to. This is the goodness of God because he makes promises to us and we receive them in faith. This is who God is. Our salvation and all that he has for us is on the basis of us receiving it in faith. Let's pray.